I didn't feel that significant pain until after the funeral, a week later. And then I would say, I think it's important to tell people after six months, I really figured out that they weren't coming back. I wanted them to walk through the door. I wanted them to appear in the house. I just kept thinking this didn't happen. Although I am the one that found them, I'm the one that saw them. So I knew that, but there was a piece of me that just desperately was making up stories about where they might be. That's why they weren't with us and all these things. But at six months, my soul said, they're gone. They're gone. You've got to really process it now. And so I would say my heavy lifting of grieving and processing the grief and processing my anger started at six months. Hey, friends, Lisa Kiefoffer here, creator and host of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast a show that explores the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives. A podcast about grief? Yeah, I get it. But here's the thing, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. And I'm no exception with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. I also spent a career as a social worker, as a narrative therapist, and now as founder of Reimagining Grief. And I just kept seeing how grief illiterate we were and are and the harm that's causing all of us. So through this show and through my work at Reimagining Grief, I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. Earlier this year, I had the honor of sharing a conversation with Mindy Corcoran, a grieving mother and daughter. In 2014, her personal loss made headline news around the world when her son and father were shot and killed at a Jewish community center outside of Kansas City by a white supremacist gunman intent on killing Jews. In the intervening years, Mindy has worked tirelessly to heal her own shattered soul. And in today's episode, she shares what she's learned about grief and healing and courageous kindness along the way. Before we start the show, I want to ask you something. Have you ever learned about a company and then actually met their team and thought, wow, these people are on a powerful mission? Well, that happened to me nearly two years ago when my GSB guest, Renee Rouleau, told me about her experience with Eternova. Since that time, I've not only met the team, I've also had the honor of supporting them in their shared quest to create a grief smart culture. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about what they've created. The team behind Eternova gets how much we need to maintain our connection with the ones we love who are no longer with us. They understand that we want to keep them close and ensure their story is told for generations to come. The amazing thing is they've made that wish into a reality, creating a way for us to celebrate our remarkable loved ones by turning their ashes into a diamond. You can learn more about them by visiting Eternova.com. And oh, don't forget to check them out at Eternova on TikTok too. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, everyone. I am so excited to bring you my guest, Mindy, today. Mindy, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. So today, y'all, we're in for a really important, beautiful, 
And I'm not going to lie, possibly challenging conversation to listen to, but Mindy's story, Mindy's experience is so moving and she has learned so much and shares so much. She's going to tell you a little bit about the book that she wrote in the wake of the loss that she faced. But Mindy, I wanted to just start our conversation today before we get into the sort of details of the story that you're going to share with us today. But I always like to ask my guests to think back to your childhood or your young adult life and to reflect on what your earliest memories of grief were and how were the adults modeling grief implicitly, explicitly? And what do you think you learned about what grief should look like? I'm using air quotes. If this was on video, you would see that. And how do you think that actually fit or didn't fit maybe what you experienced? But can you remember the first time you experienced grief as a child or young adult? I can, yes. I appreciate you asking these questions, you know, in preparation, because I I like to be prepared. I listened to another podcast that you had done with another guest, Amber Smith in particular. And so I had an idea of what you're going to do. And you do a wonderful job preparing us as guests. I want to say that. So when I thought of that question, when was my earliest moment with grief? We lost pets. My family had pets. And We lost a cat. I remember losing a cat named Pete and he was huge. It was this huge, huge cat named Pete. I remember losing him. I remember along the way, we lost a cat named Pai Pai. She was a Siamese cat. And then I also had gerbils uh, at one point in time and I had to bury my gerbils. And I remember that we buried Pete in our backyard. I don't remember where we buried Pai Pai, but I would think we buried her in our backyard. And then I remember burying the gerbils in little shoe boxes. And being given the opportunity to put something in with them, write a note to them, talk to them, tell them goodbye. And then, you know, we dug the hole under the tree and buried the gerbils. And looking back at that house, it's in Marlow, Oklahoma, and it was on Ninth Street. And any of my friends from Ninth Street are... You can probably see that tree that had all kinds of, you know, deceased pets, but loved, you know, beloved pets. And so to finish answering your question, how did they model it? Well, clearly they modeled my parents, my dad and my mom modeled death as it's a reality. It happens. Uh, It's something to be acknowledged because we acknowledged each of our pets and there were more, but those were the first ones that I remember as a child. And I left that house. We moved into that house when I was seven and we left that house when I was 14. So that was a, a good amount of time. But my parents did model that. What they didn't model, and I find that um, it's not, you know, I'm not giving them any blame or shame or anything, but what I didn't see, and I think many of us cannot see this in people, is the pain inside when someone grieves. But they did allow us, they allowed me to say goodbye. They allowed me to understand that it was a reality. And I'm sure if I was sad, they allowed me an opportunity to be sad. So many things there that I think resonated with so many people. If you all could see me, I've been nodding my head through Mindy's whole answer. Two things. I think one of the things we don't really take seriously often is loss over pets and our relationship with pets, particularly when we're young because they we have a kind of magical relationship with them. But I'm coming up on the one-year anniversary of losing my rescue dog, Brutus, and that was devastating to me, right? So I think reminding us that we have can experience really meaningful losses with pets is important. But the other thing, Mindy, that you brought up that I think is a is such a great reminder is sometimes I ask this question and I think people get worried about like, oh, am I going to throw my parents under the bus? 
you know, like I don't want to judge them or get them in trouble. And really the reason I do this work again comes from my narrative training is we all have beliefs and I call these grief beliefs in particular. And we aren't really recognizing the ways they operate in our lives and either help us or hurt us in our grief that we're experiencing, let's say, as adults. And the only way we can sort of make them visible and figure out whether they're helpful or hurtful is to sort of do a little anthropological digging to figure out where did those grief beliefs come from? A lot comes from kind of our broader culture, of course, but we're influenced by our caregivers, whoever they are in our lives. So yeah, I appreciate you. you. Um, I think, yeah, when I was thinking about my pets and and the actions that we took and the actions that I was allowed to take and, and encouraged to take, they were all very good actions and very meaningful. What I didn't see were tears. I didn't see my dad cry and I didn't see my mom cry. And there was also a family death that was um, very sudden and horrific. And and I don't remember seeing my mom cry during that either. And so when I experienced my tragedy, I was surprised at how many tears I had and that, that they just never stopped. And because I had not seen that prior. Yeah. See, isn't that interesting? I mean, Really, the purpose of the work I do at Reimagining Grief, this podcast, is to make visible all of the textured, nuanced experiences that we all have, you know, depending on the type of grief, the type of loss, the type of relationship. But if we make them visible and we see them, then we feel less isolated and alone. We are less likely to sort of pathologize ourselves, right? If like, what's wrong with me? I never saw this. It doesn't mean everybody experiences everything, but the more that we can make visible, the less alone people feel. I think that's that's the hope for the work that I do. Well, I also think not only less alone, but less crazy. Yeah, I mean, well, exactly. I, I mean, I just remember thinking I am Looney Tunes that I think that my dad and Reed are just going to show up in the backyard. They're just, yeah. this is a nightmare and it's going to be over soon. Yeah. And then to share stories with people and to hear other people say that they felt their loved one was going to appear again made me feel not only less alone, but like I was not losing my mind. Exactly. And there's so many reasons, frankly, physiologically, that we feel like we're losing our mind, let alone just the fact that we don't hear these stories enough that makes us think we're unusual or unique. So I appreciate that. What I wanted to invite you to do, Mindy, is to share a little bit with as much detail or not, by the way, as you want about the happenings, the events that happened on April 13th, 2014. And before you share your story of your loss and the details of what happened, I want to say to you and to our listeners, I always invite people to do that with that caveat. I think it's very important that we tell honestly and openly the stories of loss, particularly as is in this case, when loss is violence and it relates to murder. I think it's important because we have to face these realities and also other people will feel less alone as we just talked about. And I recognize that we live in a Kardashian world culture where everybody is in everybody's business. And so I want us to all get practiced at feeling confident and telling stories that help us, that we feel are meaningful, but not feel pressured to keep up with reality TV, basically, is sort of what I'm saying. So that's just sort of the backdrop invitation to you, Mindy, to share what happened that day and just begin the journey so that we can come alongside you. Lisa, that's a good way of explaining how to show up at a dinner party, you know, appropriately dressed as I feel like I should be appropriately dressed, whatever that is for me. (laughs) So I'm not going to show up naked, 
but I, you know, may not show up with lots of layers either. So I like the way that you explained, not necessarily the reality show, but what is still a healing conversation for myself. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So I'll start on April 12th because on April 12th, we were a family of four and we were having dinner with my mom and dad. So family of four, my husband, Len Lowson, and it's L-E-N, and my older son, Reet, R-E-A-T, and my younger son, Lucas, L-U-K-A-S. And I always spell all of our names because they're very different. (laughs) And uh, so this is the four of us. And we were having dinner at my home with my mom and dad, and we called my mom, yay, yay. And then my dad was called Popeye. So sometimes if I slip into that, that's who I'm talking about, yay, yay, and Popeye. Love it. So Lynn and I had been um, on an anniversary trip in April, and it's still April. It's April 12th. And we had returned, I want to say, on maybe April 9th or 10th. And then Lynn had another short trip, and then he was back. So it's April 12th, and we invited my mom and dad over for dinner. They had kept our boys, which was extremely common. My parents were the grandparents that bathed, fed, clothed, you know, took everywhere and did everything with our children and and all grandchildren. So we were very involved. So they had been with the boys and we were, you know, telling them thank you by having them over for dinner and then getting caught up on what had happened, et cetera. And the importance of that is that during this dinner, we had a discussion about the next day, which was April 13th. And it also happened to be Palm Sunday. And I mentioned that it's Palm Sunday because we're a Christian family. So my faith is Christianity. And in the conversation, Reet, my older son, 14, had an audition the next day. And it was to begin at 1.30 was his time slot. And I had selected the date, I had selected the time, and I had every intention of being at that audition. And Lucas had a lacrosse game that started at about 1, maybe 12.45. He needed to be there a little bit early, though, for, you know, practice and warm up and such. And so I said something about Reet's audition and Lucas made a sad face and Reet saw the sad face. So this is older brother seeing younger brother upset that mom's not going to be at the lacrosse game. And uh, I tried to get out of going to the lacrosse game, but I couldn't. Lucas wanted me at the lacrosse game. And so I asked my mom, yay, yay, will you take Reet to the audition? And she couldn't because she was taking my niece and nephew to get Easter bunny pictures. And then I asked my dad, well, then dad, you know, I think Reet actually interjected and said, Popeye will take me. I mean, he Reet just kind of declared Popeye will <laughs> take me. And that was just a, a known. And I frame it this way because this is who we were as a family. We were intertwined. We we did things together. We were often together at their home or at our home. Again, we were just all intertwined. And so the next day, there were a lot of things that were really good that happened before one o'clock. And I go into a detail in my memoir, Healing a Shattered Soul, about all of those beautiful things. But for the sake of your podcast, I'm going to get to the point of talking about grief. And that is the lacrosse game was canceled. And I drove into the Jewish Community Center where the audition for REIT was supposed to be taking place, where it was taking place. And I found my father dead in the parking lot. I found my father lying perpendicular to the truck. And I thought that he'd had a stroke or a heart attack. Those were the first things that I thought about. And as my car got closer um, and I'm getting sick to my stomach and I'm starting to get very anxious and upset and I'm not seeing REIT anywhere. I'm not seeing any other humans anywhere. And I managed to stop my car. I don't take anything with me out of my car other than the car keys. 
and I run as quickly as I can in sandals to my dad's body. And he has not tried to make any movement, but as I, and, and as I get closer to him, it's very apparent that he's deceased, but I don't understand how, you know, how this occurred, but I can tell that he's deceased by what I can see. And I want to go to him. I want to get closer, but I'm about two feet away. And this is really critical in my life's journey. I feel pressure on my shoulders. I feel as if someone is stopping me as I'm wanting to go near him. I feel like I'm stopped. And I hear the words, your father's in heaven. Go find Reet. It was very clear. There was no one around. I have never questioned that I heard it. I've never said it any different differently. The easiest path to go around my father would have been to the left. There was no vehicle around him, but his vehicle was at his feet. And I stepped around to the right and back and right. And as I came around the truck, his truck, I found Reet, my son, in the arms of two men. And they had pulled him from the vehicle and they were trying to save his life. And what we later learned within about an hour and a half is that Reet did lose his life. He lost his life in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. My dad was shot with a gun at point blank range about two feet away. And then they, and he was killed on contact. And then the shooter turned the gun through the windshield and shot Reet through the head. And it does sound, you know, really horrific. It was a gunshot. And so what I saw when I saw Reet were red dots on his face where the um, buckshot had gone through and he couldn't survive. His wounds were way too great to survive. And he lost his heartbeat very quickly in the ambulance. And so my journey was so significant because I lost what who I call my two people, my dad and Reed and I all shared dimples. We all shared hazel eyes. We all shared a dislike for cilantro. <laughs> we all shared, you know, the love of laughter and joy and positivity. All of us shared that. And again, as I mentioned, our families were very intertwined. So my mom lost her husband of 49 years and one of her grandchildren. My younger son, Lucas, lost his only sibling and his grandfather. It just, it was an enormous, it, and it has been an enormous loss. And that is, um, that's been part of my journey since April 13th, 2014. I just want to take a moment, if we can, and just... Hold Reed and Popeye in our hearts. Thank you. And you. And you. Thank you. So many people experience grief in their lives. All of us have. As you shared from the beginning, Mindy, we don't get out of this world not having multiple, you know, experiences of grief. And there's no validity in comparing our own griefs against the other griefs or griefs, you know, with other people. Because your grief is as valid as whatever your grief is. And. I, yeah, I completely agree with that. I really do believe that. And each grief experience, especially the one you just described, where there is violence and murder, has its own layers of complexity. It has its own details, its own reactions, embodied emotional, psychological reactions. So while I think it's important to not get into a comparison game, I call that the grief thief game, I do want to honor and recognize the particular unique challenges is not even the right word, but the, the unique circumstances of your loss. When we come back, I ask Mindy what it was like to begin mourning her very personal losses 
given it was a national, even international news story. She also shared her thoughts and reflections on gun violence, on white supremacy, justice, and compassion. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer, and you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Mindy Corcoran. One of the things I, I'm, I'm wondering whether you're interested or comfortable exploring is, you know, not only did you experience this horrific death that you witnessed this, but this was also a very public news. Obviously, this is gun violence. This happened at a Jewish synagogue. The murderer, as I understand, was a white supremacist. So there you were, you know, cocooned in your own grief and shock, but also probably, you know, pushed into this bigger context of this bigger, you know, news story in your town, in the country, in the world. What was that early time navigating the sort of personal reality with the, you know, sort of public reality, if you want to explore that? And a little bit what you've come to think about justice, compassion, gun violence, white supremacy, like what what has evolved for you in these seven plus years? It has been. Yes, thank you. That's a a lot of questions. Yeah, I'm I know. Gonna touch, uh, yeah. I'm going to touch on the early parts, and then you might need to remind me yeah. to circle to circle back into. You something. got it. I appreciate you mentioning. Yes. So, so to be very clear about the entire episode that happened, my dad was murdered first, and then Reet was murdered second, and then the perpetrator, the shooter, who what I that's what I call him in my book is. Then he took his weapons and he shot up the Jewish community center. So it was a a Jewish community center. It wasn't a synagogue, but it was a Jewish community center and Jewish community campus. There was a Hebrew school or is a Hebrew school on campus and also a gym, a very active gym, uh, had a lot of people in it at that time and a theater. And that's where Reet was going that day. He was going to what they call the white theater for the singing competition. He was auditioning for a singing competition. And so the the perpetrator shot up the area, shot at other people. Luckily, he missed them. But then he took himself to another location called Village Shalom, which is also a Jewish location, and it's a retirement center. He shot at a, a one or more people in the parking lot, as I recall. And then, unfortunately, he murdered another woman, Terry Lomano. And her full legal name is Teresa Lomano, but we call her Terry. And her family is close with us now. Unfortunately, we met at the district attorney's office, which is not where you want to be meeting anyone. But Jim Lomano is a widower and he's got three children. So we're in line and in step with his family and we do a lot together and consider one another family members. So that's the entirety of of how that happened that day. He the shooter was a white supremacist. I can say was because I want to tell you something that happened just on May 3rd of 2021. So seven years after their murders, they were murdered in 14. On May 3rd, 2021, I published Healing a Shattered Soul. It was the day of like the birth of the book. Yeah, that was my publisher. Front Edge Publishing said May 3rd will be the birthday of the book. And I and I went straight to this because when I'm speaking about the shooter, the murderer, he died on May 3rd. Wow. The murderer died. The murderer died on the day that I published my memoir about how he shattered our lives. And so when I speak about him now, actually, this is the first time I've spoken about him in such detail, I realized that I can talk about him now in past tense because he's not living. And so I wanted to clarify why I could do that. So he was tried, he was found guilty, and he was on death row in Kansas. 
And he also had just gone through, started the appeals process because just due process of law, he had a, an opportunity to appeal the death penalty. And he was just beginning to start that at the end of April. I want to say April 29th. My book published on May 3rd, and he died on May 3rd of natural causes in prison. So when I speak about the shooter, I can speak about him in past tense. So as I said, I might need to circle yeah. back. So you asked about, um, again, compassion and white well, supremacy. you know... And we don't have to go there in this conversation. But what I'm curious about for anybody who's faced a violent death loss or malpractice, something that was beyond sort of quote unquote natural causes. And again, there's no comparison. Loss is painful no matter what. But I think there's then space for the griever to explore ideas of justice, of compassion, of forgiveness, and just the sort of mix of those things. And what have you learned looking inward over these last seven years and about how you feel about those topics. Okay, yes. Thanks for bringing me back to that. So what I would say, too, about the violence of losing a family member or a friend via violence is I used the term, and I still do, I say Reet was murdered. I say that my dad was murdered. I tend to not say when my dad passed away. I don't use that language. I don't say my dad passed away or I don't say Reet passed away. I say when I'm in conversation, when my dad and Reet were murdered and that may come across to people as crass or harsh or why does she still say that, et cetera. But what's interesting is that's what happened. They didn't pass away. They were murdered. And that is my reality. And I processed that reality. And I tell other parents, other family members who have lost or friends who have lost people to violence, I had to process that my dad looked the murderer in the eye as he murdered him, knowing that his grandson was in the truck next to him, knowing that the person, one of, you know, 10 grandchildren expected him to protect them. And then he couldn't protect him at that point. And he looked at the, I am told that he looked the shooter in the eye because that's what the shooter had said. And he murdered him on contact. And then I have to process that Re was died by murder, died by violence. So he saw his grandfather murdered and then he and then the gun was turned on him. And so that is a lot to process. And that's its own piece of processing. And it's that takes a lot of effort and time and professional counseling, a lot of walks, a lot of journaling. That's how I wrote the book. I just journaled and journaled. I have many books filled with anger and sadness and you know, yelling. I was, I've been angry at God. I've been angry at the shooter. I've been angry at decisions that I made to, to put them in that situation. So the layer of complexity is, is accurate. I also wanted to touch on that someone who might have only lost a pet, that that is their level of grief. And someone had said to me about compare it, you know, people want to compare their grief and people will say, well, I don't suffer from anything as much as what Mindy suffers from, but that shouldn't stop someone from feeling a sadness that they have a right to feel. And so that's what I want to say. I want to say that that I had a friend who her nephew died by suicide and but he wasn't murdered and he and he died by suicide and it was extremely difficult, but she she didn't feel like she had the right to grieve because of my level of grief. And I have offered her as much permission as I could and I and I tell that to people that you have your own level of grief and you you need to own it and sit in it and feel it, feel the pain 
I heard on Amber Smith's podcast, she said, sit in the suck. Yeah. And I love um, that expression, right? Yeah. And I, and I didn't want to use it without saying that I heard her say that because I've used that. I've used that. You, you sit in the suck, you sit in the pain, you sit in the anger and you allow it to flow because that's what it should do. What I recommend to what I did for myself and what I recommend for other people is that you find a system where it can flow and it not sit in your body because it's toxic. So anger and the sadness and all of that, you need it. It's it's part of who we are as human. It makes us human. But if it is allowed to sit for too long, it will make us sick and unhealthy. And so I'll I'll transition real quickly to forgiveness. Very quickly, people said, Jewish people came to me and said, how did you forgive so quickly? And Lisa, I had to go look up the word forgiveness because I thought, what do they think? I didn't understand by my words. I had not used the word forgiveness, but the way that I was reacting to people, they thought that I had forgiven. So I looked that up and I'd spent quite a bit of time thinking about forgiveness. And what forgiveness is, is not allowing the hate to sit in your heart for someone or the anger. It's releasing that anger. I don't say the shooter's name. I don't talk about who he is or who he was. His name's never mentioned in the book. I never mention it in anything that I write or say. My reality is that they were murdered and have had to process that. And I look for things that bring me joy. And I look purposely for kindness. And specifically, I talk about courageous kindness because that's how we healed. We healed through acts of courageous kindness. Oh, Mindy, there's so many beautiful and insightful things that you just shared there. I really appreciate it. I want to come back around to anger and this courageous kindness as well. But I want to sort of mirror what you just said and remind our listeners that the goal of our grief work is not to not feel anymore. Although sometimes, boy, do we just want to not feel. And that's the beauty, by the way, of our bodies going into shock early on as it gives us a little space to maybe, you know, that numbness, that early numbness that we feel. But the invitation is not to not feel, nor is it to sit, you know, sit in the feelings or allow it to be stuck. Part of what we know to be true about emotions, about our feelings, is that they come and go no matter what. I mean, if you think about that time that was like so joyful, it passed. And so too will the anger moment, the sorrow moment, the sadness moment. It doesn't mean it only comes through once. I often tell people, think of your emotions like visitors over for a cup of coffee. They're not the relative who's going to come unpack their bag and move in and be in your guest room for like, are they still here? So if you can think about them, you know, as coming in and being there, as you said, to, to teach you something, to tell you something about your experience, about your capacity, about your pain, whatever the emotion is, there's information there. And if we can sort of treat it as a visitor and allow it to flow, then each time we do that, we're also building our own resiliency and capacity to know when that next feeling comes and sits in the suck with you and it feels, ugh, you can have that almost embodied memory. I remember another time when this visitor came over and it was, I hated it, such an annoying visitor, but they left. And the more we can sort of loosen our grip in a way and allow that flow that you talked about, that's, I'm not saying it's easy. And if you're in the place in your grief, by the way, listener, that's early in your grief and you feel like you've literally been crying for three days on end, I've been there, done that. I see you. I know Mindy sees you and hear my voice from some place down the road. It will pass. And each time it does, take a mental snapshot. Notice what it feels like to go from being in the heat of the emotion and then having it pass, because you'll need to draw on that each time that next emotion kind of comes through. Yeah. 
So I really appreciate the way you talked about the sort of evolution of that flow and also really helped us understand this difference of forgiveness and allowing thinking about forgiveness not as a gift to the perpetrator, but as a gift to yourself. Correct. Forgiveness for sure is a gift to yourself. Yeah. And one aspect of how I reached that was I, again, I'm Christian and I listen to a lot of Christian music and I I was listening to Christian music 24-7 and all of those verses and words and finding love and, you know, God is love. God doesn't want people to hurt. God doesn't cause cancer. God doesn't pull a trigger on a gun. God doesn't make a car wreck, but God is there immediately. And whether you see God, hear God, feel God, however that happens, I happened to hear God that day. I know I heard God that day. And since then, I feel like I've heard that small voice from God as well. But what I will tell people who say, I've never heard God, where's God? You may be hearing God through song. You may be hearing God through friends, through uh, someone showing up at exactly the right time. Let's say you are on your knees sobbing and the doorbell rings. And to me, that is God has sent someone to you and they're there for you. And and you want to welcome that. And so that that helped me process through that that path. I remembered when you were talking, Lisa, if you don't mind, you said, how did we handle the public onslaught of what was going on? Because it was international news. I mean, the President Obama had called and the, the, so the White House had called and internet, we got international mail. It was, it, there was an onslaught. What I didn't understand initially was that it was international. I didn't know it was national news. I didn't know it was international news until our pastor said, the Today Show wants to interview you. Well, you know, the Today Show is a pretty big deal. That's, you know, like Good Morning America wanting to interview you. And so my older brother was was with us. This was just the next day. And he came and picked me up and took me to an interview. And I just did it. I was just kind of a rote thing. I just I was still very much in shock. I, I was crying. My body was crying, but I I didn't feel the pain pain the significant pain until after the funeral, until a week later. And I, I felt a lot of pain initially in the, the shock of all of it. And then I would say, Lisa, I think it's important to tell people, I really found out, I really figured out that in six, that after six months, they weren't coming back. I, I wanted to will them back so badly. I wanted them to walk through the door. I wanted them to appear in the house. I just kept thinking, this is, I'm in a nightmare. I'm in a nightmare. This didn't happen. It wasn't, it wasn't them. Although I am the one that found them. I'm the one that saw them. So I knew that, but there was a piece of me that just desperately was making up stories about where they might be. You know, Reet might be at camp. My dad might have taken a vacation. I just kept, that's why they weren't with us and all these things. But at six months, I say in my book that my soul said, it's time. My soul said, they're gone. They're gone. You've got to really process it now. And so I would say my heavy lifting of grieving and processing the grief and processing my anger started at six months. Wow, Mindy, that's such an important reminder to all of us that we just do what we need to do. You know, that whole expression, I don't know who, how you do it, which, by the way, don't ever say that to anybody. We just do it. We don't have a choice, so don't say that. Um, but first, your description of kind of almost going into an autopilot kind of shock and just kind of showing up for the interview and doing what you need to do. But also the reality that even when you know something to be true, your mind, body, soul cannot process it. And that's not a bad thing or abnormal thing. That's not something wrong with you. We are creatures of story. Humans, 
when we left the cave and started planning and living in the world, we are storytellers. And our lives, our identities are built by stories. And when we have a catastrophic loss, it's as if the manuscript of our lives have been torn to shreds and then handed back to us with no instructions on how to rewrite or live into our lives. And so especially in those early, and for you, it might be a month, it might be six months, you might be listening to this and you're still a year out. That's okay too. As much as we like to have checklists and timelines, they don't happen. But if you give yourself the space to understand your story, how we feel safety and operate in the world is by story. And your story, even though you saw Reet, you saw Popeye that day, it's incomprehensible because we're trying to comprehend the incomprehensible. And our bodies, our minds, our cognition, everything just takes time to catch up. And so to offer yourself grace and to hear Mindy and I remind you that if you're still hearing the door open and looking as if the person's going to come through. I mean, I got into bed with my husband after they took him off life support and laid with him for eight hours until he died in my arms and left the hospital and came home and had to tell my daughter. And I still, I don't know if it was six months or longer, would get in the car, would open the door, the phone would ring. And I would think, it's Eric. Even though I saw, I felt him, he died in my arms. I know he was gone. And so to just offer yourself some grace that that there's nothing pathologizing, there's nothing, you know, I don't even like to use the word crazy, but there's nothing wrong with you. If you're still trying to make meaning, your story has been flipped upside down. So give yourself some space and grace to begin to discover a new story of your life. Yes, I, I love how you added to that and, and added in your own story about about you were physically with Eric and yet you still thought that he might show up, expected him, wanted him, whatever it is in us, we create that story to help us heal. And then at six months for me, that story, you know, my soul said, you can't keep telling yourself the story that they're going to come back. They're not going to come back. And so I had to start writing the the new storyline. And, you know, many, I, there was none of this I did on my own. There were so many people, so many people that walked alongside me that helped us. Yeah. When we come back, I asked Mindy to explore what she's learned about grief support, acts of kindness and service, and how courageous kindness has become integral to her life. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. I understand how absolutely challenging it can be to be fully present for someone who is facing the kind of unimaginable pain Mindy faced. We're not uncaring people. It's just not something that most of us learned how to do. That kind of empathetic practice often doesn't happen in our family of origin and certainly isn't taught in school nor encouraged in the workplace. That's why I'm so honored every time I get to bring an empathetic leadership workshop to a corporate setting or grief and empathy and patient care to medical schools like Baylor College of Medicine and healthcare institutions like Live Strong Cancer Institutes. If your organization is looking for guidance on how to help build an empathetic culture, I'd love to work with you. Visit reimagininggrief.com forward slash grief smart culture to learn more. 
tell me a little bit about that for my listeners and the people who follow my work on reimagining grief. I talk often about grief support as much as I do about grief and sort of what helps and what doesn't help and the surprising ways in which people we never expected to show up for us show up in ways that are incredible. And then the people sometimes for us, some of us, the people we expected who was going to be there just weren't able to do it. So what Do you have a story in mind or something particular about the way someone or some group of people showed up that was helpful or surprising or? Yes. In in particular, one piece of information that I want to share about people helping us was how quickly people showed up at my mom's home, my mom and dad's home that night. And I remember thinking, how did they know? How did they know it was my dad and son? How did they know the address? How did they know to be here, et cetera? All of that was going through my head. But there was one woman there in particular who slipped her name and phone number in my hand, and her daughter had died of natural causes a year prior. And so her name is Margaret Reynolds. That's my friend. And so the next morning, she had said, call me anytime. And so 5.30 a.m., I called Margaret. And I You're said, like you said, anytime. <laughs> I said, I, I need you. And I'm a planner. You know, I was a founder and CEO of a wealth management firm. And I'm a, you know, a type personality and I get things done and I need to make lists. And, and like you said, I, I had things I needed to do. And so Margaret showed up and we started talking and she was very helpful. And she said to me, you know, you might want to be private. You might want to, you know, let the news media know that you want to grieve in privacy. And I said to her, I'm not supposed to grieve privately. And I didn't know how I knew that, but I knew that was my answer. I said, I'm not supposed to grieve privately. I'm, I'm just not supposed to. I found them and I'm supposed to share that. I'm supposed to share that I heard the words, your father's in heaven. Go find Reed. I felt that I had a responsibility. So that was the very first real interaction with someone intimately that wasn't a family member or a pastor. And then within a few hours, Lisa, a woman showed up, the doorbell rang, you know, and there's somebody, God knocking on the door. And it was a Jewish woman. And her name is uh, Kathy Shaikovitz. And I write about her and Margaret in the book and about what they did. So Kathy walked in with her laptop. And over the next 10 days, there were two women in our house every two hours from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., they rotated, and these were women from Women Who Mean Business, and these were women from my my neighborhood, from my boys' schools. These were women who got on a list, and they came in, and they did what needed to be done. They fed us. They clothed us. They did our laundry. We didn't need our lawn mowed at the time. I don't think anyone mowed the lawn, but that's always a good option. They washed right. our dog. They fed our dog. They took our son Lucas to school. They did things that as, as humans, as, as a mom or as parents, as family, you know, what do families do? We all do a lot of the same things. We all need to right. eat grocery and shop and yeah, grocery shop. We need to eat. So these women, women who mean business is, is a real group of people. And I was very lucky and thankful to belong into that organization. And so did it come as a surprise? You know, to the extent that they helped us for as long as they did, yes, it came as a surprise. But then after the fact, I thought it should not have come as a surprise. You know, we're many, many, many of us are A-type women and we know how to get things done and we're not afraid to step in. And uh, and they did. They stepped into our life. And I say, I like to say this, they breathed life into our home. They breathed 
life and joy and talking and smiles. And they helped me eat again. They helped my husband eat again. They helped get Lucas what he needed. They helped us plan the funeral. So they they lifted us, extraordinarily lifted us. I love that story. I think a lot of people can relate. I definitely had a team of women who stepped in and did things I didn't even know. And I loved, in particular, Mindy, that you used the that expression that they breathe life into us. One of the pieces I wrote early on when I was doing this work, when I wanted to share it, was this life motto I learned when I learned how to scuba dive when I was 12. It was a total fluke. It was a crazy thing. I went scuba diving against my better wisdom. I don't know. And they teach you sort of, and my motto was sort of dive in and breathe deep. That was kind of like, you just go, you just kind of go for it. And one of the things that I learned, particularly when my husband passed, but I had learned it, I had faced a trauma in my teens, a violent act myself. And there's a third piece to that life motto, and that's buddy breathe when necessary. So there's an expression in scuba diving where you sort of, if your tank runs out of your regulator, you have to share. And I think we we all struggle somehow to believe that it's okay to, we're the first ones to offer our regulator, just to keep the scuba dive metaphor going, you know, to somebody to breathe, but to receive or to feel that we are deserving or it's okay to welcome in that help. And so I just love that analogy of the breath. Like, how can you show up and breathe alongside or for somebody when they can't breathe? Breathing is an you know automated thing that our body does for us. But when we're stressed, we sometimes either shorten or literally <gasps> sort of stop breathing. So metaphorically, how can you do that? And by the way, here's another grief support tip. Besides, I love the practical, you know, just take out the garbage and help them put put their bills on auto pay so they don't forget if they don't have it already, do that stuff. But another is go and sit with somebody and do some breathing. Just model, help them take in some big inhalations, some deep exhalations, and just help because our bodies are so dysregulated by this experience. So I just love that that metaphor of of helping you breathe. I think that's such a beautiful gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, that's that's exactly what they did. They breathed life into our family when we when we couldn't breathe on our own. Yeah. And they helped with absolutely everything that we needed help with at the time. And when they left, I had withdrawals. Yeah. You know, my house was full with people and I appreciated it. I helped it. But here's the other thing, Lisa, that I tell grievers is be ready to say yes. I know. So just like you talked about the buddy breathing, be ready to say yes, because some people have said, like women, you know, we don't want to take help. We want to say, we can do it. I can do can everything. Do everything. I'm a superwoman and I should, I should be able to do everything. Well, when you are debilitated as much as I was debilitated, you know, I was, I was functioning and I looked fairly normal. I was not normal. And I, I was very foggy brained. I was foggy brained for over a year. I forgot how to do math. There are there are things, computations that I still struggle with that I I created some spreadsheets for my firm. Okay, I'm going to be very simplistic about this, but my business partner and I created these spreadsheets and I had been using these spreadsheets for years. And when I went back to work within several weeks and I and I went into a client meeting at about five weeks, it took me about five weeks to get into a client meeting and I went in, I couldn't explain it. And I'm the one who helped create it. And I had to call for help. I had to call in an associate and say, can you walk our client through this? And she looked at me kind of like, what's wrong? And then later, she took it. She took over. She didn't question me. She took over. And then later I said, I can't do math right now. And I hadn't known I couldn't do math yet, but it has come back. But there are some 
there are holes in my in my brain, there are holes in my memory, and I have to give myself grace and say, Mindy, you had a very significant trauma. I I mean, I I had what would be considered um, a life altering experience, a near death experience. I was upon my father right as he just minutes after he was murdered. The, the police thought that I had passed the shooter as I came into the parking lot and that he was going out of the parking lot. That's how quickly I was on the scene. I don't think that I did. I think that he was already out of the parking lot, but I was, I was there very, very quickly. And then to see Reed losing his life and then to know within, you know, 25 minutes he did lose his life. So it was, um, I was very drawn initially to books about near-death experiences because I was trying, I was grasping at how did I feel? I felt as if I was in another world. I felt like I was in a, like a different space and time. And I like to call that heaven. I was in a different dimension. And so I really grappled with that. What I know now, I don't feel that all the time. What I know now is there are different dimensions for us. And when we are in a meditative state, sometimes we can find that different dimension. And and then there's just this thin veil between me and my dad and Reed. There's a thin veil between me and and other people, other spirits. And I, I can believe in God and I can believe that. I've been told I can't, but I do. I can believe in, I believe in both of them. But yes, the, so the people walked alongside us and the key ingredient to that is I opened the door and I said, yes, please come in. And she opened up her laptop and I just didn't say no. I just let her do whatever she needed to do. And it was extremely healthy for all of us. Yeah. It's such a beautiful story, and it's such an important life lesson. I don't know about you. I'm about 10 years this summer will be since Eric passed, and I help people for a living. That's what I do. I've been a social worker my whole career, and I'm much better at saying yes, and I'm much better at opening the door. And it's still a challenge because we're fed a lot of other ways of thinking about what it means to receive help. But I personally think, I mean, I went back to work after two weeks as a clinical therapist at the time. I was the, I was the running a, a nonprofit at the time and, you know, getting into helper mode. But I think the fact that I've spent these intervening years participating in my own healing, seeing my own therapist, doing my own EMDR work around my trauma, I'm a better helper because I know what it is to receive help and what has helped me and what didn't. So I would say, not that you need a good reason to receive help, but I think our capacity for compassion, empathy and compassion grows exponentially when we not only go through a hard thing, because just going through a hard thing doesn't necessarily open you up to that. But when you go through the hard thing and then you open yourself up to heal and receive help and to do the work of grief, your capacity for, for empathy and compassion, it just continues to flourish, I think. I gather that was an experience you you faced, yeah. Yes, I think it expands. I think it's an exponential growth that we have. And I know that the new term post-traumatic growth is is making its way around quite a bit, post-traumatic growth. And I saw that written about and I thought to myself, that's that's where I am. I'm in post-traumatic growth. I have a broader understanding of who I am and how I feel and you know what I what I want to do for others and how I feel like I can help others and I feel intuitive to that. Another key thing I'd like to mention here is that my son Lucas was 12 at the time and he suffered greatly, just so greatly as a 12 year old. And we did not understand how much he was suffering. Now, that doesn't mean we didn't get him help. We got him help, but it really 
wasn't exactly what he needed, but he did. Um, he was suicidal on two occasions. And I talk about it publicly if someone's thinking, oh my gosh, she's sharing this about her son. He did a podcast with me. So that's recorded on my own podcast channel. And, and it was, it's reached so many thousands of people. And I'm so grateful because he was 12 at the time. He was, uh, 18 when he did this podcast with me and really talked openly about what had happened. But he was suicidal twice and then he needed medication. He, I tried medication to help me with my sadness and it didn't work for me. It, it numbed me so much. I couldn't feel anything. And so I opted to not use medication and I opted to just feel the feels, just feel them and, and just feel them and know at some point they'll flow because I started realizing they would flow out of me. But he wasn't feeling the feels and he was compartmentalizing. And then when he was ready to feel the feels, it was so painful that he contemplated suicide. So on two occasions, he needed extra care and extra help. And we got him that and they got him out of the darkness. That's what we say, got out of the darkness. And then he wanted to be outside and he wanted to golf. And so he found something that helped him heal. And so I think for each of us, I talk about this in the in the book and I talk about it on my own podcast and I know you talk about it. Each of us need to feel comfortable in finding whatever it is our path is to helping ourselves heal. Yeah. And to be open to the fact that it's going to change over time. So what you need, you know, six months to a year might look very different a year to two years and so on and so forth. And to just be open to exploring. That's the work of grief really is to explore that for yourself and and be willing to try different things yeah which can feel scary but is a beautiful gift i love that story i always think nature is the answer frankly i think something having to do with nature is usually a good place to start it's a reminder of the natural elemental ways that we are and exist in the world yeah i agree and it's a great way to find god yeah i find my dad and read in nature and i find god in nature Someone might be wondering how I find Reet and my dad in nature. So Reet comes to me as a yellow butterfly. Okay. And my dad comes as a, a red cardinal. And one time we were, well, it was the very specific time we were leaving our home of 13 years. We moved out of our home after four years and we made a move from Kansas to Florida. And the day we were leaving, I was videoing the whole house and I walked out of our basement and kind of up onto the grass and there were two deer, just two. Now, we lived on acreage and there were always families of deer. There were always six or 10 deer at any given time. And I walked up and there were only two. And they were just looking at me, these two deer. And my dad and Reet liked to deer hunt. And so I feel like at that moment, they knew exactly where, where I was and what I was doing. They knew I was sad that I was leaving this home. All these memories I had planned were not going to happen. And so we left the home and we moved to Florida We've been healthier for it. But when I'm out in nature, that's when they appear to me. Mm, I absolutely love that. I love I love those reminders, whatever they are for you. Some people come to you in your dreams. Some people see symbols. And if you don't, too, I just want to say there isn't one way. So thinking about, you know, even just feeling an embodied memory, that might be the way someone comes back to you. So don't don't get locked into that there's one way. I'm, oh, I'm waiting for, for my butterfly or I'm waiting for my dragonfly. I know Kelly Abbott talked about that on, on our conversation last season. But just be open to how you can feel that love across whatever dimensions you feel. And I do think nature is 
a great place to say that. For those of you who do or don't believe in God or have a particular faith or whatever, whatever your practice is, I do encourage you to find ways, find paths, find moments to connect with this concept of love. Again, whether you attach that or not to a spiritual practice or a religious practice, I think part of the healing work of grief and loss and reshaping our story is to recall in our embodied selves this notion of love. Eric used to come to me in dreams all the time, and that's a whole story for a whole nother podcast. But one way he came to me, I believe, one time, I, was, I want to share this story, Mindy, because you talked about love and the importance of embodying love. Sitting in a yoga class, and as per every week, um, my girl, I'm going to give her a shout out, Laura, who leads a Motown yoga session every Sunday, that's my Sunday morning church, said, would you like to set an intention today? As she does every time. And sometimes things come to me, sometimes things don't. And I had this image of Eric's smiling face because, oh man, that guy could smile like light up the world. And these words came to me, may I see love, may I feel love, may I radiate love, and may I receive love. And I've turned that into a meditation, which I offered to the folks. But I just want to offer that to you and your story, Mindy. I feel like if I'm not taking too much liberty, really connects to that notion. So so may I live and walk in the world seeing acts of love, seeing notions of love, feeling those loves. And then as you talked about this courageous kindness, sort of radiating love into the world, and just as importantly, breathing that love back into ourselves. Absolutely. That that is beautiful. And I like that you said that there should be a podcast with about you and Eric. Maybe you need to turn the tables and someone can interview you. I could interview you about that. I, I know your listeners can't see your face right now, but you are radiating. You are just so joyful. And I and I think it's interesting too, just to clarify, Reet hardly comes to me in dreams. He's been to me one time. So, you know, just one time and it's like this fleeting dream that I had. But he comes to me in different ways. And so I love that you're sharing how how Eric came to you and comes to you. It seems like it's often. And and the love you're emitting right now is great. I can just, if, if your listeners can see it, you're glowing. Thank you. Yeah, I did. There is a great podcast out there. I'm going to give him a shout out. Dr. Black does a podcast called Grief Dreams, and I was on his show years ago. But I would love to have a conversation with you, Mindy, on so much more about this ideas of love and grace and kindness in the world. I feel like we could talk for hours, but I want to give you a chance to, is there something you want us to know about REIT and to know about Popeye? Is there one word or quality you carry forward that you want our listeners to know? It could just be like a a favorite thing or a aspect or a quality. I always love people to give a chance to bring their memory forward. Yeah. So Popeye, we shared so much and I mentioned a few things that we shared. Popeye was pragmatic. My dad was pragmatic. And I share some very simple stories about him in my memoir. And so I will say he's pragmatic and therefore I am pragmatic. And so many people just say, you just get right to the point and it just is what it is. And I, I'm like, I am my father's daughter. Um, I'm definitely my father's daughter. And Reet, oh, a love, just a love. You know, he's my firstborn and uh, it was a rocky start. I talk about that in the book. I give the details about that as much as I feel like I can give. So talented, just a singer and his dimples and his smile and his shining eyes. And um, I of course, hated having him taken from me. But when he was taken from me, his friends and his friends' parents 
sent, we received hundreds of cards from students and student parents telling us what an amazing friend he was. And that is always with my heart, that he was an amazing friend and his friends still remember him. It's only been seven years. I know it seems like a long time, but it also seems like yesterday. And um, so he was he was a shining light and he was a good, good friend to so many people. I have a lot of good stories there. I wanted to say one thing about courageous kindness. I know sometimes I mention courageous kindness and I want to give a definition of my definition of what that means. When we feel prompted to do something for someone or to say something to someone or to take an action and it feels as if it's uncomfortable, it feels like, who am I? Why would I be the one to do that? I don't know that person. Why would I call that person? Or I, why am I feeling like I should say this to this person that I don't even know? Stepping into that and through it and doing that action, that is courageous kindness. And those actions of people who came to our house and lifted us up, and then many, many people along my journey who stepped into my space and helped me, I have now in turn, I do that. I step into people's spaces and say, I'm I'm feeling prompted that I should do this. And that is an act of courageous kindness. And I feel like just like love, I feel like that courageous kindness can heal all of us. Mm, I love that. It's the exponential capacity of compassion. That's what you're talking about there. Yeah. Mindy, thank you so much for spending this time with me, for sharing your story, for sharing the light that Reed and Popeye gifted to you and to all of us in the world. I know you have touched the hearts and minds of so many of our listeners, and I look forward to more conversations to come. Thank you so much, Lisa. You're doing wonderful work, and I appreciate being just a small piece of it. Thank you. I'm so grateful to Mindy for being so honest, so reflective, and insightful about the devastating tragedy she experienced and the wisdom she's gained as she works to heal her shattered soul. Thank you for listening and for bearing witness to her experience today. I promise to drop a link to her beautiful book, Healing the Shattered Soul, in the show notes for today's episode. I want to thank Giles Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today. I want to thank that team at StudioPod for helping me produce it too. As we close the show, I'd love to ask you one quick favor. I love hearing from listeners of the show. So after this, I'm asking you to head to Apple Podcasts, find the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, leave a rating and write a review. The world of algorithms counts on that to get this show out to the people who just might need it most. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. <laughs>